Welcome to the Sense of Soul podcast. We are your hosts, Shanna and Mandy. Grab your coffee, open your mind, heart, and soul. It's time to awaken. In the early morning hours of May 22nd, 2013, yeah, tell her we have help on the way. We're going to get them there as soon as we can. Mandy Nankis needed help and fast. She was very serious. Edge of 13 medical. Thankful that her husband, you know, had the wherewithal to call right away. She's not breathing. John Woody Woodruff and his partners Cameron, Eric, and Glenn from Aurora Fire Station 13 got the call and were on the way within minutes. Engine 13, copy on scene. Everything was happening so fast, and no one could have seen Mandy's life beginning to repeat itself with a very unique father-son connection. He's my hero. Father is the same. Try to try to model everything I do after what what he taught me. On that morning, Woodruff was doing just that and following in his late father's exact footsteps. He was the biggest role model in my life, hands down. Yes, and we did everything together. You see, John Woody Woodruff and his dad, also named John, had the very rare chance to save the same woman's life exactly 18 years apart. And I remember going to the awards banquet and meeting her 18 years ago and everything just fell into place. Both were engineers with the Aurora Fire Department, Woody Sr. with Station 6 and Woody Jr. with Station 13, when an urgent call from Mandy's family came in. And both times, a random and very severe asthma attack was threatening her life. It was about as near to death as you could possibly be. Did everything we could to keep her going to get her to the hospital. I think the biggest part, like you said, the memory of my dad. Yeah, it's very amazing to me. And and that, I, I, it's very unbelievable that that same call, same person, 18 years apart. Welcome. Thanks for being with us. Today we are talking about near-death experiences and how people who have experienced this have been led to spiritual awakening. Mandy will be sharing her own personal experience of her NDE, and the 911 call you just heard was the second close call for Mandy. 18 years prior, her mother had made the call to 911. But Mandy, let's talk today about what happened after the incident in 2013. Can you tell our listeners, what were the difference of the first and second experience? The first one was, as you heard, an asthma attack. I do remember a little bit about what happened beforehand. Just got really hot and uh, went blind. That was probably one of the scariest things. And I knew something bad was happening. From there, I had a seizure, and that's when my mom called 911. I do not remember a whole lot after that, but apparently they put me on my parents' living room floor and intubated me. What I do remember is that when they were taking me into the ambulance outside on a gurney, I could see these people standing there, like neighbors, looking with curiosity and that is when I realized I was outside of my body I was having an outer body experience and watched the firemen actually load me into the ambulance 
it was very peaceful. I didn't feel fear. I was almost just observing. I watched them like hook me up to some machines inside of the ambulance. And then I remember my conscious telling me everything that I had to live for and listing a lot of people over and over and over, just saying names of people that I needed to come back for. And there wasn't any big jump back into my body. It was just a very calm experience to where then I was back inside of myself. So the first one was an outer body experience. Uh, In 2013, I actually crossed over to the other side. In 2013, were you conscious when the firemen got to your house? I was not. I actually remember very little about that whole evening. I do remember braiding my daughter's hair before bedtime and making chicken teriyaki sandwiches. And that is literally the extent. I will say that our brains and my God are so powerful and amazing because over the last few years, I slowly have had a little bit more memories about what had happened. And I believe it was to protect me from trauma because if I remembered it all at one time, it'd be too much. So I don't remember a lot, but sometimes things will come back to me. Like for example, I would feel a lot of energy coming out of this one room in my house. And eventually the memory was released to me that that was where I had gone into and plugged in my nebulizer. And that's where I'd actually went unconscious. And I triggered you. Yeah. What was the very first thing you remember from this experience in 2013? So the very first thing I remember five days into my coma, I remember an event that will forever change my life. It was the day they had brought my family in to say goodbye to me. My lungs were, had holes all inside of them. They had performed HELOC. They had put a main line in my neck. My body was in rigor mortis. I, I was slipping away and the nurses were frantic and they had tried everything they could. So you remember that? No, I don't remember that, but I, what I reason I, I mentioned that is because that is the night that I remember that I crossed over to the other side. And what I remember from that was, it's important that I mention that because I believe I was, I was dying. I was, my, I was so close to death that my soul came out of my body and I crossed over. A lot of people think near-death experiences, you have to flatline. I do not believe that. I was as close to death as you could possibly get, and my soul left my body. And what I experienced was I saw five women, and I was standing at the top of a hill, not a very steep hill, and there were these trees. They almost looked like aspens, and I was standing in this beautiful forest. And there was these five women that slowly made their way up this hill. And they were all wearing these beautiful white long dresses. They kind of looked like bridesmaids dresses, but a little bit, very simple. And they were of all different ages. There was one that was in her late 60s, one that was in her 40s, one that was in her 30s, one that was in her teens, and then there was a little girl. And they slowly walked up and gracefully just greeted me and they didn't say anything. They were quiet, they were mute, but they just 
gave me a sense of a welcome. We slowly walked down, but I didn't see my body. I didn't see myself in physical form. I just was in spirit. And then they were gone. And I was looking around and I saw what was probably the most beautiful thing I've ever seen in my life in the English dictionary. There aren't even words to describe what I saw. So work with me here, listeners, because the words don't do it justice. What I saw was earth untouched by humans. So the green was greener than you could ever imagine. The purple was more purple than you could ever imagine. It was earth untouched by humans, waterfalls, lush green hills, trees. The sun was shining. The, the, I saw a few birds. Uh, this, the clouds were just no pollution. It was just as fresh and as beautiful as you can ever imagine. From there, I saw my brother. And I'm actually physically shaking right now. Um, so my brother passed away in Iraq in 2007. Um, and I looked over and I saw him. And then I saw another gentleman. The gentleman that was kind of standing about 10 feet back from my brother had his back to me and he was shirtless <laughs> and he was really tan. <laughs> Wait, that wasn't my dad, right? <laughs> <laughs> no, and he was really muscular and, he, but he wouldn't look at me and he was holding, he was holding a, a walking stick. Um, to me, it was a representation of, of Jesus and he wouldn't look at me. But my brother, my brother had copper, like, like almost like stars, but shaped in squares all around his head. And he was wearing his Desert Storm Army uniform. And man, was he handsome, just like he was on Earth. His eyes were so blue, and he was um, calm. He was just present. Did he speak to you? He did not speak to me with his mouth, but mm-hmm. he spoke to me with his spirit. Mm-hmm. And he, his body went away. It was almost like he presented himself in physical form, so I knew it was him, and so I wouldn't be scared. Mm-hmm. But then he, you're, the physical goes away, and we are just in spirit together. Mm-hmm. And so we were talking through our spirits. And he told me, that he's always with me and my family and his wife and his daughter and that he loved us and that I needed to go home. He mentioned my son, Connor. I didn't want to come home. I was tired from fighting. Who would want to leave such a peaceful peaceful place? There were no feelings of missing people. There were no feelings of sadness. There was no feelings of concern. It was like complete, just spirit and love and peace. I I don't even know how to describe it. It's like there's not these feelings. You're just part of everything around you. And so I told him, I don't want to leave. I don't want to leave. He said, you have to. Your son needs you. You have to go back. And I fought it. But I knew. As soon as he mentioned my son, I knew because Connor was going through a rough time in high school and with sports, and he was my first baby, and so I knew I had to go back. 
could you see yourself laying on the hospital table? No, I could not. Um, in and out of my coma, I heard people talking and they were joking about the dreadlock in my hair and the pigtails. And I, I, I would go in and out. I, I could sometimes hear the beeping of the life support. But when I did come back, apparently, and I don't remember this, this is just what I was told, I was like a miracle. They said all of a sudden all my levels started turning around, my oxygen levels. They said they had never seen anything like it. Wow. And that I do remember the presence of my children coming into my room. And the main thing I remember was that I was sent back with this Asian girl who was probably around seven, and she had on a long navy blue dress. And she never said a word, but she was holding my hand back to earth. She was like my escort home. And she stayed with me all the way through three days of hardcore, scary hallucinations. And she brought me constant peace and just sat in the corner of my hospital room and would come over and hold my hand and bring me calmness because I was terrified when I woke up. Yeah. I remember when you woke up, I went up to the hospital and Mandy had no filter. (laughs) None. None. She had no ego. She was all soul, no filter. And she was talking and telling everything about her life and even confessing. And I was a little concerned that she was going to start even confessing my sins to the room. So I asked her kindly, listen, you don't need to talk about mine. Oh my gosh. And it was quite funny because really I was like, she was confessing. She was just speaking very honestly, very raw, had no filter. And she was definitely hallucinating. She had told me that she saw my dad. Mm-hmm. Um, down the hall in the hospital, which she hadn't been down the hall in the hospital. And she was like, Mike Favre, hey, it's me, Mandy, which is so random. Of course he was, because he played a huge part in our lives. And then you were like, you're a special one, Shanna. They told me. You're a, I don't know, do you remember what you Yeah, were so there were certain people that would come into my room that had this very white aura around them it was around their whole head and their shoulders and you were one of them and I was told that you were you were the chosen ones I don't know what that means but my one of my nurses named Rosa Sloan was also one of them your complexions were so clear and you were so flawless and so beautiful and angelic and you were speaking to me from this compassionate, kind place, whereas some of the other nurses didn't have that or didn't feel as connected to them as I did with these uh, with people like you. Wow. So, yeah, I thank you for bringing up that memory because that was special to me. And Rosa Sloan, I ended up naming my little girl after. Um, but you're right. I had no filter. Uh, I I believe it was the DMT that was released in my brain. A lot of times these hospitals will say that it was a reverse reaction to the paralytics or the fentanyl. I trust my experiences and I trust myself. And so I know for me, 
this was part of my spiritual awakening. But yeah, the filter girl, oh my God. I can remember telling the freaking doctor he was hot. Oh my gosh. And I had to see him later on down the road. I was so embarrassed. I remember um, telling the nurses that freaking showered me that I was upset that um, I looked like a Chia pet in certain areas. <laughs> oh my gosh. Well, all I know is that the rat's nest that you had. Oh my God, my hair. hair. Yeah, if you ever know anyone that's in a coma, brush their hair, people. Um, I remember my tongue falling out. It was so traumatic. I remember crying and crying and begging my mother-in-law to help me. It was laying on my lap and it was as real as real gets. I remember thinking that I'd relapsed and the shame and the guilt. I remember that too. Yeah, it hurt so bad. I thought I had betrayed myself and my family and God. And I went immediately back into all of those feelings of self-hatred that I felt when I was in my addiction because that's all that made sense to me because I couldn't remember what happened. So I thought you must've relapsed and blacked out and that's how you got here. Yeah. That was all that made sense to me. And it was terrifying. Yeah. It was so terrifying. I remember thinking that everyone hated me and pleading for my life. I even remember telling the chaplain, I wanted the devil to just take my soul. So it was very strange because I just went from experience this very heavenly, spiritual place and then coming back to almost feeling like I was stuck in this three days of hell. Mm-hmm. So Mandy got her wake-up call that night for sure and was put into an induced coma. Why did they put you in the induced coma? So they put me into an induced coma because I was in complete respiratory failure. I could not breathe on my own. When the fireman got to my house, I was at 20% oxygen. So the induced coma was to allow me to relax and was allowed them to do what they needed to do. And in the simplest definition of a coma is a state of deep unconsciousness. Mm. Yeah, this is the scientific side of it that I love. What a near-death experience is, is a profound psychological event that may occur to a person who is close to death. During this close call, people often report that afterwards they have an experience of spiritual awakening and a deeper connection to their soul and the world around us. It was a psychiatrist named Rick Strassman, the author of Spiritual Molecule, who conducted research on DMT and near-death experiences and their similarities. DMT naturally occurs in many plants, animals, and in humans, and in us it originates in the pineal gland, which is also known as third eye. DMT can also be released during some forms of deep meditation and in our sleep, and Mm -hmm. it's said to be released during or as death approaches. Wow. And Rick Strassman claimed that reports of near-death experiences have striking similarities to the DMT-induced state Mm -hmm. or taking such ritual drugs as ayahuasca. The effects of this mimic a person's experience as one approaches death and both having similar characteristics and sensations like out of body experiences, transitioning to another world, mm. entering into a tunnel of light, flashbacks of their lives. Okay. Um, they report 
an inner peace, like you said, and yeah. also being greeted by a deceased relative or angel, like beings being around them, telling him it's not their time and that they should return. Wow. So exactly what you experienced. And they also have similarities in the after effect that it's said they experience a spiritual awakening. And in some cultures, they actually take ayahuasca, which has DMT as its primary ingredient, to actually activate the soul that leads to a spiritual awakening. But still, more research is being done. There's no absolute proof yet to validate this. But it's all very interesting, and it totally makes sense to me. Yeah, it made sense to me, too. I remember just feeling different and so that's where my research with that started well when did you realize that this was actually a life-changing spiritual experience like what lessons did you learn from it i mean you mentioned when you first came out you saw me with an aura around me did you see auras that clear prior to your experience absolutely not i also had never seen a spirit before and the very first thing i remember was five days after i had been stable and moved to a different part of Parker Adventist. They brought in um, some EMTs to transfer me to Spalding Rehabilitation because I couldn't lift my arms. I'd lost 30 yeah, pounds in muscle. to learn how to do yeah. everything. Yeah, over. I did. So I was being transferred there and I was laying on the gurney going down the hall. Sorry, I'm getting emotional again. And I remember seeing uh, this little Asian girl Again, the same angel that was sent back with me. And she was holding this older woman's hand that was holding onto an IV tree. I think that's what they call them. And she waved goodbye to me. And I looked up at the paramedic and I said, hold on, hold on, stop. Turn me around, turn me around. And he turned me around and she looked back and waved goodbye to me. And you were drug free. Drug free, medication free, no medication. I had no IVs, no nothing. Everything had been taken out of me. Days after. Five days after. And I remember in that moment thinking, I am forever changed. So that was that first big moment. And then the awakening and the symptoms that came with the change happened over a very long time. Like the sensitivity to noise, and noise. Um, the connection, the deeper connection, the spirits coming to me at three o'clock in the morning with messages, uh, the disconnect and how uncomfortable I felt with just the world, the average world. I don't know how to say that. How would you, I don't know that that's the right way to say it. No, I think, and you are, you're still kind of maybe over on the other side. Yeah. So some lessons that I learned were, I think the, the number one that came to my head was to breathe. I is to just literally sit and breathe. I was in a very stressful time of my life with work life. And so to take more time to breathe. I have to say this because I believe it's part of my purpose. If you have asthma, listeners, if you know anyone that has asthma, please have a asthma specialist treat your asthma, not a primary. And listen to your bodies. You know, that was another lesson I learned. You have to, the signs were all there. I I wasn't listening to myself. I was so busy in life that I was not stopping to listen to my body trying to tell me that something was happening because this asthma attack was brought on over a long period of time 
And then I think the other thing that I learned was to slow down, to stop and smell the roses. (laughs) Another big lesson I learned was that that God loved me and loved me exactly where I was and where I'm at. That God loves Mandy that's going to drop a little F-bomb here and there, has some inappropriate comments. If I miss church, God is still going to love me. God loves me. That was a huge awakening for me. I think another one is that stress management. I, again, I mentioned that because I was very stressed at the time. Another one, be present. That tomorrow is never promised. And I get emotional thinking about that because I remember that night um, being with my daughter and my son was in the basement and that could have been the last time I ever saw them. And I was so busy in my life, I wasn't taking time to really just be and to spend quality time with my children. I was so busy with work. To uh, let go and let God was a huge one for me. Um, Asking for help, I learned that in my recovery to be grateful, to thank people, the families that were supporting me, the friends that supported me, the firemen, the doctors. A lot of those people don't get thank yous. And then I would say two of the biggest ones that I learned were that you don't need to fear death. I don't fear death. We here on earth selfishly miss people in the physical, but I can tell you and I can promise you that they are more with you now because they are spirit and they're more here now with you in spirit than they ever were when they were here on earth. I struggle with death in the way that I might be at someone's funeral and this happened to me. It was at my aunt's funeral and I caught myself smiling the entire time and I felt so happy for her and it probably looked really unempathetic to the family and but I truly feel so happy for people because I know where they are they're free they're free and they're saved yeah and then this one is definitely the most important lesson that I learned to know your truth that I know my truth I know what my experience was I know what I went through I know what I saw I know what I felt and that this world would try to condition, condition me into thinking that this was a hallucination or this didn't really happen. But I know my truth and I trust myself and I trust my experience because God is in me, universe is in me, source is in me. So if I were to not trust me and let the world condition me back into believing what they want me to believe, then I'm turning my back on myself and my God. So to trust myself to trust my experience and to carry that experience with me every day and to spread this experience and share it with others. Truth is your experiences. I know two other things that are sure in life. One, that the only sure thing in life right now is this present moment. And two, that one day we're going to (laughs) die. Both of which demonstrate impermanence. I wrote about impermanence on my website some time ago because I was awakened to the knowing and understanding that in life nothing is permanent, nothing is guaranteed, nothing is forever, that everything is temporary in this moment. We don't know what will happen in two minutes from now or by the end of this podcast, that everything changes and grows and transforms. 
And in many cultures, they don't even see death as the end. They see it as transformation. The shaman circle that I was in a while back, the shaman was from Colombia. He explained that his culture within his tribe, they believe that death in itself is a transition. And we experience death from the moment we leave a mother's breast. And as we move on to the next stage, like to the bottle or the cup, the prior stage is now a death. Mm. And that with each transformation forward, that we should celebrate the death of the end of a stage. The Buddhists also teach and practice impermanence. Everything changes, and the only sure moment is the present, but that attachment is the root to all pain and suffering. In today's world, we work really hard for what we have. We work really hard for our material wealth and gain for those we love. And it's no wonder that we see our homes and cars and jobs, families and friends, the source of our happiness, our worth and security. But when change happens, when we least expect it, like for instance, when you lose your job, your car gets totaled, or your friend ends up in a coma, or a loved (laughs) one dies, these can bring so much sadness, struggle, and suffering, and of course it does. Losing something you've worked hard for, or losing a loved one is the hardest thing I've ever gone through, but understand that it is because we become so attached to them, they become part of who we are, and our happiness, and our success, and then when they leave us, we feel abandoned, Mm. we feel empty, we feel failure, We may even feel no longer whole or complete. We don't want change unless we choose to have change. Mm -hmm. That would be nice, right? Yeah. (laughs) This is ego, but it doesn't work that way. In the past, I can tell you that I hated change. I mean, I would love to stay in my 20-year-old body forever. (laughs) That would have been... (laughs) Wouldn't we all? Yeah, Mm. and I wish I could have kept my loved ones who passed with me forever yeah but I can honestly tell you right here right now that my dad gave me life twice my dad gave me life in my birth and then he gave me life again when he died because then I had to learn how to live in this world without my father by my side who I depended on for 40 years and his death was going to change me too it was going to make or break me thankfully I didn't let it destroy me And I became stronger than I ever had. I'm sure Mandy, when she woke up from her coma and she felt that rat's nest of hair, (laughs) thought life was never going to be the same. I I mean, did you feel like, I wish this wouldn't have happened. I wish I could just be the old me. I mean, you had to learn to brush your hair again. I did. I actually have a video of myself uh, celebrating brushing my hair. It was a very humbling crazy crazy experience but i'm so grateful for it today can you relate to what the shaman had said how transformation is like a death that part of your life was like a death of you it was a death and i had to actually grieve the old me i had to grieve who i was before this uh massive earth shattering experience i remember you were going somewhere i think it was a concert or something shortly after like you couldn't do it i couldn't the do you remember that yeah Absolutely. It was a country uh, western concert at Oh, well, Fiddler's. I'm so glad you didn't have to suffer through that. <laughs> and <laughs> it joking. was just, I, I, I had to slowly come out even. I was nervous to even go out my front door into the world. I felt so different. And don't you feel it's strange how DMT, the primary ingredient in ayahuasca, 
is so similar, the experiences that people have reported. I do, and I think there needs to be more research around it. My thoughts on ayahuasca is I hear that it does bring you to a spiritual awakening and you have out-of-body experiences and all that stuff. But I wonder if it's, are you ready when you're, in, when you're initiating a spiritual awakening? I think for me personally, I do feel like it's making it happen. And so you're forcing, you're a forcing awakening. a spiritual awakening instead of letting it naturally happen. And our society is, I want what I want and I want it now. And instead of doing the work and the research. Because don't you feel like you even had some things happening prior to your and into this experience? I do. I, you know, you want to know what? <laughs> so I had uh, a lot of signs of an awakening after my first out-of-body experience. When I got out of the hospital that first time, I remember, but I resisted it. Remember, I talked about that in the oh, spiritual yeah. awakening episode. Would say another lesson that I forgot to talk about is don't be as stubborn as me. If you, if you feel a spiritual awakening, embrace it because he had to get really dramatic with me. And then when I would get up to, when I crossed over, he turned to me and or he never looked at me because I believe he was like, oh, heck no, girl. I, you're, I'm not letting you up here yet. I am not done with you. You go back down there. <laughs> a wake up call. Yeah, big time. But I always say it's so ironic that I had to die to awaken. And I don't think people need ayahuasca or anything like that to have this awakening. I think that it can come naturally. And we all have it at different times in our life. And it doesn't have to be through something dramatic like what I went through. No, it could be like how my experience with yes. spiritual awakening was long and hard. <laughs> <laughs> oh, gosh. And that brings us to break that shit down. I don't know why I laugh when I say that. I think it's funny. Anyway, break that shit down. Learn to not take the present moment for granted by accepting and loving what may come and allowing release when it's time of change occurs. This means that your happiness is no longer kept by anything outside of you. In other words, you remain free. Respecting and honoring this freedom for the self and others. Willingly allow life, others, situations, experiences, emotions, and material gains to come and go. Find gratitude for which is beyond our power. Like the seasons, everything changes. Trust in the journey where life, death, and perhaps even near death is ever shaping us. Yes, life is just too short. Don't take it for granted, people. And this week, I actually challenge you to... Put that appreciation down in a journal. Maybe do a gratitude journal. Or, Mandy, you do a joy journal. Joy journal, yeah. Um, Writing one thing down a day. You can do this before you go to sleep or whenever. How do you do your joy journal, Mandy? I just take a few seconds and write down something very simple that I am grateful for at the end of my day. Right, and sometimes that doesn't always look like all the great things in your life, and sometimes it looks like the hard times, the growing pains, the near deaths, the struggles, the roadblocks, the loss. You have to find the blessing in the lesson. And we challenge you to do this for a week, a month, a year, whatever's good for you. Sometimes it's hard to see the light in the darkness of times. And this can really help you have a fresh new perspective on life. I'd like to thank Mandy for sharing her 
near-death experience with us today and however you may end up on your spiritual journey just know that it happens at its own time your time the right time and it is our hope that our podcast can help guide you I also want to give a shout out to Kelsey. It is her birthday. Happy birthday, girl. Thanks for supporting us. Thank you for listening. Next week's episode will be on healing. Like, subscribe, and review. And go to mysenseofsoul.com to read in detail more about my near-death experience.